Today is the 4th of July, uh, and so I'm speaking a little bit this morning about our American friends. I love American history. It's one of my passions, uh, one of the things I'm really interested in. And Benjamin Franklin may be well known to you, the American revolutionary, the inventor, the man who was shocked by his kite. He said, wow, look at this kite. Um, That was a joke. Did you get that one, Ian? Okay, good. Thank you. Some of you got that. Good. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, he was a revolutionary inventor. He wrote to a friend of his that there are two certainties in life, death and taxes. Two certainties in life, death and taxes. And here in Mark chapter 12, we're going to have some questions, and the first two questions are to do with death and taxes. Today we're talking about taxes. By coincidence, today is the 4th of July, Independence Day, when our American cousins celebrate the day they decided not to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and declared all men to be equal except for the slaves that they happen to own. It is a coincidence that today is made July the 4th. I'm not clever enough to manipulate a preaching calendar so thoroughly. Uh, I planned out the year. I didn't even occur to me that today was the 4th of July and we'd be talking about taxes or that this is the beginning of the new financial year. It was pointed out to me as well this morning. Happy new financial year. And so get your taxes done. It's worked out very well. Our passage today is one of the favourites of our American cousins because they're so pleased with the concept of the separation of church and state. It was one of the reasons for their rebellious war against their rightful king. The Americans feared the imposition of a national church like Anglicanism. They feared that the the British would come over and make them have bishops like they did in England, make them pay tithes and have prayer books and all that that represented. And they looked to this passage that we study today as a justification for their war. Even as the passage they looked to seems to argue strongly against their war. Jesus says, in the Living Bible Translation, you can always justify your inconsistencies. And that's true. There are some other things that Jesus told us as well that have guided our study through the Gospel of Mark. As we've read them each week, let's read them again this morning. Jesus said, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is proclaiming this new kingdom that will replace the kingdoms of earth. And then in Mark 10:45, Jesus tells us what kind of kingdom it will be, where even the king is the servant. Let's read together from Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this kingdom, the king is the servant. In this kingdom, the king is the one who pays the price to set his people free. And it's in light of this situation that we find ourselves in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has come with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's thrown the merchants out of the temple and cleaned it all up. He's been challenged and asked questions. We've talked about that over these last few weeks. And we find ourselves in the midst of a plot. A plot. They've decided to catch Jesus. And so it says, later, the last story that we talked about last week, was them coming to Jesus and challenging him and saying, what authority do you have to do these things? And Jesus talking about them and giving the parable of the tenants. If you missed that message, it's online. You can listen to it on a podcast. 
or you can watch it through our YouTube channel. But here comes the story that follows immediately after that. That same day, later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. The Pharisees were a community of Jewish men who were thoroughly devoted to the Old Testament law of Moses. They were so devoted to the law, in fact, that they designed a large body of additional man-made laws and regulations intended to keep anyone from coming anywhere near breaking the law of God. That's the Pharisees, these arch-religious conservatives. The Herodians are the opposite end of the political spectrum to them. The Herodians were a group of Jews who were devoted to the reign of the family of Herod. Herod the Great and his sons ruled over the Jewish people under the Roman government. The Romans had rolled in 63 BC. They'd rolled in. They'd conquered the kings who'd been there and threw them off their throne and set up their own puppet kings. This guy named Herod uh, was Herod the Great. He's the one that we read about in the story of Jesus' birth. After he died, his sons were given different parts of the kingdom, split between them, except for this part here in Jerusalem, which the Romans are governing directly at this point. But the Herodians are the Jewish people who say, look, we need a king of some kind. Herod's a pretty good king. His sons were okay. Let's make him the king. Let's get along with the Romans. Let's just do business with them. Let's just make things work. And you couldn't find two groups of people more politically opposed to each other than the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were firmly and fiercely devoted to the idea of Jewish independence. They would have thought that it was an absolutely appalling thing that they had to pay taxes to an ungodly Gentile ruler like the Roman Empire. The Herodians, on the other hand, knew the benefits they drew from the Romans and they knew that they came to them through this family of the Herods. In contrast to the Pharisees, they would have thought it was absolutely essential and beneficial to pay taxes to Caesar. And this is all wrapped around what we call the third commandment. Some of the commandments are numbered in different ways. Um, I'll just step aside here to say that if you watch QI, who watches QI, the British comedy show? Nobody. Okay, I'm the only one. Uh, There was an episode of QI where Stephen Fry said, how many commandments are there? And when they answered 10, the klaxon went off because in the 10 commandments there are actually 14 separate instructions, according to Stephen Fry. We need to say to Stephen Fry, and this is my response to you, Stephen, if you're listening, which I know he's not. Stephen, in the very next chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, it talks about the 10 commandments. We didn't come up with the number 10. The number 10 is there in the text. Some of them have sub-commandments. But what we Protestants call the third commandment, but the Catholics call part of the second commandment, and we won't get into all of that, says this, as we read with the kids' time, this instruction, not to make themselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below, beneath, or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them. And because the commandment is there not to bow down and worship these things, The Pharisees and other people say, well, rather than even give people the temptation of having something to bow down and worship to, let's not make images of anything at all. And so very orthodox Jews will say, we're not going to have people faces on our pictures, we're not going to take photos, we're not going to have paintings. Uh, Very uh, fundamentalist Muslims who share these commandments as well, um, the Islamic faith, some of them will, will not have pictures of anything 
And so Islamic script is often beautiful writing because they're not allowed to have any other artwork in their house. They will have pictures on their wall of Islamic script, of Arabic script, and even to the point where the flag of Libya is just a plain green because there's no images on it. So they're very extreme, some of these people, in, in this way. Um, and it comes out of this commandment. And so these extremely conservative religious people said, God has told us not to make images of people, and yet the Romans are insisting that we pay a tax, every one of us, with these coins, with the head of the emperor on them. And it gets worse. Because on the outside of the the front of this coin uh, here, a bit hard to read, and it's not all the letters there, but basically it says Tiberius Augustus, Uh, son of Augustus the God, more or less, is what it says around the outside. Tiberius Caesar Divi Auguste Filius Augustus, which says Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So Julius Caesar, you all know Julius Caesar. He's the guy who upset Asterix and Oblix until he got stabbed by Brutus, et tu Brutus. His adopted son Octavian became the new emperor, became emperor after him and changed his name to Augustus. And when he died, the Roman people decided he was so good, that Augustus guy, he must have been a god. And so they started worshipping Augustus. At this time, when Jesus is walking the earth, the new emperor is a guy named Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. And so on these coins, which the Jewish people are already upset about enough, it says the emperor is God. And if that's not bad enough, on the other side, on the back of the coin, it says Pontif Pontif Maxim, which stands for Pontifex Maximus, high priest. To this day, the, the popes of Rome have taken the bit Pontiff. So you often hear about the Pontiffs. They've taken that from the Romans, the Roman high priests. They've just taken the word for priest and applied it to themselves. This is an offensive coin for Jewish people, particularly for religious Jewish people. And the Romans don't seem to care. In fact, they seem to delight in making the Jews pay their taxes with this coin. And so they come up with this plot. They're going to butter Jesus up bit of flattery, and then they're going to spring their trap. They come to him and they say, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? All the things here they use as flattery are things that are true. They call Jesus a teacher. And that's true, he's the master teacher. We know that you are true, they said. Jesus himself said of himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is true. They went on to say, you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men. And that, of course, didn't mean that Jesus wasn't concerned about people, or he was indifferent to their means. It simply meant that he treated everybody the same. He treated everybody equally. He wasn't influenced by rich and powerful people wealth and fame or power. He never adjusted his teaching to fit in with what people wanted to hear. And They conclude, you teach the way of God in truth. They were pretending to acknowledge that Jesus truly was a prophet from God. 
that whatever opinion he gave on the matter would be a true and reliable word of divine authority. But their flattery didn't achieve anything. But we sometimes try it ourselves, don't we? Maybe if we praise God enough, we'll get what we want. Maybe if we sing loudly enough or pray hard enough or worship him with our hands raised, maybe if we suck up to God enough, he'll do what we want. It doesn't work. Praise with an ulterior motive is not praise. So they try this flattery to butter Jesus up and then they ask their question. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? This was a sincere debate of the day. and These leaders in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and their different political parties have been arguing about this for a long time. People did struggle with this, but it was also a question selected and crafted in order to trap Jesus. If Jesus had been distracted by the flattery or been butted up by them enough, he might have said, oh, of course it's right to pay taxes. And then he would have instantly alienated himself from many of those who followed him, would have divided the people against himself, maybe allowing them to call the Romans down on him for causing a disturbance. But if, on the other hand, Jesus had said, absolutely not, it is not lawful for any Jewish person to pay taxes to a heathen king, then they could just take his words, just as they'd been spoken before the witnesses, and go right to the governor, to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and file a report. The Roman legions would have marched down on the spot and arrested him. These people have been threatened by Jesus and his growing popularity, and so they've decided to divide and conquer by putting before Jesus a controversial issue that will upset his followers no matter what he says. Some of them will go with him, some of them will go against him. That's their plan. And if he gives the wrong answer, the Romans will arrest him on the spot. Instead of that, Jesus gives an answer that steps outside of the argument and goes beyond the argument. He says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius is the Roman coin that was on the screen before. It's worth about one day's wage, so a person might work for a day and then get one of these coins. Maybe he asked his opponents for a coin because he didn't happen to have one on him. Or maybe he was a strategic move saying, well, if you guys don't want to carry these coins around, show it to me. Do you have one? If any of the Pharisees pull out a denarius, he can say, well, if you guys are carrying him around, it's fine. Mark tells us they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? and Whose inscription? And the answer was obvious. We've discussed that already. What's written on this coin? It says Caesar. It had Caesar's face and name on it. The coin they used obviously belonged to him. So Jesus answers them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Those of us who grew up with the King James will know it this way. And Jesus answering said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Render, such a wonderful word, an old English word. Give it to him, render it to him. Some people here will point out the importance of the word and. It says, render to Caesar things as his and to God the things that are God's. 
And this is this idea that we have a kingdom of heaven and we are citizens of kingdom of heaven, but we're also citizens of the kingdoms of men and we have to do what's right by both of them. We have to do what's right in God's kingdom and we have to do what's right in the earthly kingdom. And that's part of it. And our American cousins made a big deal of this with the separation of the church and state. This is part of their excuse for having their July the 4th rebellion was that they thought the king was taking too much power away from the church or from true faith, so we have to get rid of the king to protect the true faith. That was part of their reason. In Romans chapter 13, Paul has a big long passage where he talks about how the Christians should obey the Roman emperors. And he writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. There's much more there. You can read the rest of it. But at the end of that little passage, uh, Paul says, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants. Give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Romans chapter 13 says, whoever's in charge of you has been put there by God, so do what they say. To which our American cousins said, that's not good enough. We don't like that. And so they turned to another part of the book of the Bible. In Acts chapter 5.29, uh, they've been told to obey. In Acts chapter 5.29, though, Peter and John have been arrested by the, by the Sanhedrin. The Jewish council have been told not to preach about Jesus anymore. And they said, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And so we have one part of the New Testament saying obey the government. We've got another part of the New Testament saying disobey the government. And the result of that, of course, is that you listen to the bit you want to listen to. And if you want to get rid of the king, you say get rid of the king in America. Fourth of July, independence, let's have some tea party and all the rest of it. Whereas our Canadian cousins and our New Zealand cousins and us here in Australia and Fiji and other places where the British had their colonial rule said, well, hang on a minute, let's just have a conversation about this. And, you know, 50 years later, we got our independence without having to fire a shot. The point of this is, is this what Jesus is saying? Obey the king and obey God. Is it an and situation? Do it equally. And when you think the king is more important than taking over from the God, then you can fight against the king. You can rebel against him. Because that's what our American cousins did. The king is levying taxes on us unfairly. And so they threw the tea into Boston Harbour and shot some rockets and had a bit of a fight and tens of thousands of people died. America's bloodiest war by head of population is their war of independence. By head of population, they lost more people in that war than they've lost in all their other wars. Is that what Jesus is saying? That when the king seems to upset your religious faith, pull out your swords and go and get him? Probably not. Because there's a reaction here. We're told in verse 17, at the end, after Jesus has given this answer, and they were amazed at him. 
or they marveled at him, or they greatly marveled him. When Luke tells this same story, he says, but they could not catch him. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. What is so amazing about this answer of Jesus? What's so astonishing about it that religious politicians became silent? I shouldn't have said America so loud, I hurt my voice. What's so amazing about this answer? Has Jesus told them to pay their taxes? Yes. So the Herodians should be happy. He has sided with them. So why aren't the Pharisees more annoyed? Because Jesus has seems to have pointed out that the coins are evil, that the graven image. These coins belong to Caesar, he says. Give them back to him. They're these evil coins with this graven and blasphemous lies on them. So has Jesus just given a clever answer that satisfied both sides? Is he advocating for perfect balance? Is he just a smooth-talking politician dividing and conquering, or in this case, pandering and uniting? I don't think so. I think Jesus' answer points to a higher reality, for which we must go right back to the very beginning of creation. So we go back to Genesis chapter 1, where God talks about, the scriptures talk about God making men and women. And so in Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. They may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The very next verse has the first commandment, which is, of course, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, and I'm doing my bit. But that's just for fun. In Genesis 27 is the summary of what God made people, why God made people. 27 is um, a bit more poetic than other bits of Genesis, and so if you've got your Bible there, it may be indented to show that this is sort of a Jewish poem. It's something they could sing or something would be easy to remember. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. We put this with what Jesus has said about these coins. These coins are stamped with the image of a God, a human God, a false God, a fake God, the image of Caesar. And so when Jesus says, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And he says, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. What is Caesar's? The coin. And then he says, and give back to God what is God's. God doesn't have a coin with his image stamped on it. He's got you and me. Genesis chapter 1 says that we, human beings, men and women, were created in the image of God. We are stamped with his likeness. We are designed and created to be like him. 
What does that mean? Does that mean that God has ten fingers and ten nose, ten, ten toes, a nose, some ears, some hair? Is he sitting up in heaven on his throne just like you and I would sit on a throne? No, God's not made of stuff. He is spirit. In what way are we like God? How are we created in the image of God? We're made like God in our ability to make decisions, in our ability to make choices, in our ability to be creative, to build, to take responsibility for things, to understand consequences. We're created like God in the way we have our will. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. I don't think God has grey hair or brown eyes or whatever else. But God is the one who can make a choice. And when we are made in his image, we also can make a choice. Dogs and cats and bears and all the rest of it, they make decisions based on instinct. The thing that separates us from the animal kingdom is this, that we are made in the, will of God, in the image of God. We have this ability to make decisions, to sing songs and be creative, to change our minds, to learn new facts and do something different. That's what it means to be stamped with the image of God. Are there any questions here this morning before we conclude? Any questions or anything that stood out to you from what we've spoken about today? For those visiting, I'd like to pause at the end of my message to see if there are any questions. If I've missed anything or confused anybody, no. You have my email address. You have my phone number. It's in your notes. If you wish to speak to me about these things, please do so. I've got two little thoughts to finish off this morning. The first is the way that the Pharisees and the Herodians decided to manipulate Jesus into getting him to do what he wanted, and sometimes we do the same thing. I know it's not nice to think that way, but sometimes we plot against Jesus. We plot and say, this is what I want, God. So we come with our plot. I'm going to trick God into giving me what I want. First, we'll start with some flattery. Oh, God, it's so good. You know, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You're so wonderful. We blah, 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 blah. Go on and on and on and on about how good God is. And then come with the question. God, can I have a Lamborghini, please? How often do we do that? Whatever Lamborghini is for your situation. A thousand Lamborghinis. Good. It might be a, a new job or a healthy child or whatever it is. We want to manipulate God into giving us what we want. So we come to him with this question and then we get an answer. We always get an answer. Sometimes we don't like the answer. Sometimes we don't react well. My encouragement to you this morning is don't plot against God, but certainly plan. Certainly come to God specifically with what we need, but don't try and manipulate him or twist his arm. God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. God, if you rescue this person, I'll do that for them. God's not impressed with that. If you're God, if you're coming to worship, to praise him, to sing his songs and celebrate with his people so that you can later twist his arm into giving you what you want, He knows that. He's not impressed with flattery. The reason we worship is because God deserves our worship. We sang this morning, one of the songs that Tabitha chose for us this week, Blessed Be Your Name, from the book of Job. 
book of Job. Job's had everything taken from him. His family, his kids, everybody's killed. He's lost all his possessions. And yet he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's not worshipping the Lord because the Lord blesses him with all these good things. He's worshipping the Lord because he deserves it. He's not trying to manipulate God into doing stuff. So just a note there. Be aware of that. Your worship, your praise, your singing your heart out, if it's for ulterior motives, it's not actually praise. And then the question of this, the two kingdoms. Are there two kingdoms? Is there a heavenly kingdom and an earthly kingdom and do we have responsibilities for both? I don't think so. I think Jesus is saying there is one kingdom, God's kingdom, and it's coming. And along the way, while we wait for its fulfillment, yes, we will have to follow some rules here on earth. But if you start treating the kingdoms of earth and the kingdoms of God as being equal and separate and different, divided down the line and never the two will meet, you're missing the point. The kingdom of God is over all the kingdoms of earth. And, yes, we're being very obedient and wearing our masks keeping our social distancing and we're filling in the things and doing the stuff we're asked to do. And when the letter from the tax office comes, says you must pay this much, we will do what we're told and we will pay this much. But ultimately we know that all these kingdoms of God are as a drop in the bucket compared to the kingdom of our great and mighty king. We do not have two loyalties. We are loyal to God's kingdom And because we're loyal to God's kingdom, we will be excellent citizens of our earthly kingdom. That's what I think Jesus is saying. And so our thought this morning to finish with a beautiful old song, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. Whatever flag you fly, wherever you were born, whatever your passport says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. We're still mopping up in corners of the earth. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the tricky questions that were put to him and the wise and brilliant answers he gave. Father God, this morning, may we see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, we want to be part of your kingdom. Father God, we want to be people who live in a way that brings honour and glory to you. Father God, if that means obeying the rules of our nation as well, Father, help us to do that with gentleness and grace and humility. Father God, help us to always look to the example of Jesus. Help us to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to give to you, our Father, all that we are, all that we have, all that we represent because we are stamped with your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.